Welcome to the Tall Poppies podcast. To find out more about our guests or the content of the program, including information about the musical excerpts, visit our website at tall-poppies.com. Brendan O'Shea welcoming you to this episode of Tall Poppies with dancer and choreographer Rhys Martin, who originates from the Australian city of Newcastle. When I think of Australia, I think about how countries arrive at, a, at their understanding of national identity. What, what is the role of a national identity in, in relationship to being an international citizen? I think of Australia as a highly privileged, fortunate country materially, and geographically, <laughs> it doesn't have six-week long winters like we do here with grey skies. It, it's also, um, even more so than America, an, a place where models of international thinking, and I don't mean a kind of reactionary Marxist internationalism, but I mean sort of ways of thinking about how one places oneself in a world that is increasingly impossible to think of in national terms what the role of Australia might be in playing in that situation. It was back in 1975 when Rhys Martin graduated from the Sydney University. He initially studied literature and fine arts and began his career in the theatre with Sydney's pioneering underground company called One Extra Dance. Rhys encountered many of the leading figures of the Australian dance scene at that time and travelled to work in Britain for a short period, subsequently to Germany, where he auditioned for the legendary choreographer Pina Bausch. Pina, I mean, Pina always had Australian dancers in the company, Meryl Tankard, Joanne Endicott. I think partly because Australian dancers, uh, in some ways, are not as restricted about what they're prepared to do and what they're prepared to try. Joanna or Merrill, a very strong ballet background, still were completely open to um, exploring what that training in their body could do in other ways in the theatrical context, whatever that is, Australian quality. I suppose the Australian quality was the openness and then the, the, the curiosity and the lack of a kind of lobby mentality about promoting one or the other kind of performance. So I think Australians are very happy to move, and it's an Anglo-Saxon thing, but it's particularly Australian quality perhaps to be able to say okay I can try this and I can try that and whatever works to be open to the new to being persuaded um, that there are other things and not to go down those lines of serious or so-called entertainment theatre or performance or painting for there uh, but simply to see what's the task at hand and to get pleasure and satisfaction from applying oneself to that situation without feeling that one's betraying a tradition of 500 years of, you know, sort mm. of like music history or European history or whatever. In 1981, Rees moved to Germany to join one of the country's most prestigious performance companies, the Reinhild Hoffmann's Dance Theatre Ensemble. They performed regularly in the city of Bremen and at the Bochumer Schauspielhaus and also toured internationally. Since 1986, Rees has worked as a freelance producer, director and choreographer of dance, opera, film and theatre. 
He's created work for the renowned contemporary music group Ensemble Modern and collaborated for several theatre productions with the well-known Sydney-based composer Eleanor Katz Czernin. Well, today, Rhys Martin is Professor of Dance and Choreography at Berlin's University of the Arts and has established the new Intercity Centre for Dance Berlin, where he now leads the contemporary Master of Arts in Solo Dance Authorship. Indeed, it was in the midst of a busy teaching day at Berlin's University of the Arts that Rhys Martin sat down to talk with me. Rhys Martin, thank you very much for finding some time and thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Great to meet you. I'm wondering what that term tall poppies means to you and what you've thought about it over the years. Well, it uh, seemed to bring me back to Australia. The tall poppy syndrome, is that what you're talking about? It's sort of big head. Mm, what else is associated tall poppies? Uh, yeah, past, because it's sort of for, for idiomatic terms, but tall poppies is sort of like get your head kind of sorted out. Don't sort of try and be... Um, be more than anybody else. It's kind of, a, especially in Australia, basic democratic kind of egalitarian society was always, especially I grew up in a, a town called Newcastle where it was very important that kind of, that nobody really differentiated themselves particularly from the others. And there was, the, on the one hand, a kind of feeling of solidarity and we're all the same, but also of a slightly or a large intolerance to anything that was not, could be identified as what we do in, in an industrial seaside town and on the east coast of Australia, so surf and play football. <laughs> been a time in your time away now where it's not been a positive thing to be in Australia? Actually, in comparison to my American friends, hardly ever. But certainly when it gets to uh, anything close to the, uh, the conversation around indigenous culture, uh, then even though I don't feel personally responsible uh, for this culture, I certainly feel that that's something that uh, we, if I can use that term, that we still uh, need to sort out. And definitely speaking, that, that uh, the whole question about colonial occupation of other cultures is something that in, it makes me in an Australian, my Australian identity, and I would say that I have lots of identities, but that Australian identity, I feel uncomfortable about because I'm not doing enough about it. One of the things I noticed right from the very beginning is that you, in your biography, you speak about studying fine art and literature, yeah. but no mention of dance, yet you're a dancer and choreographer and that's what you came to Europe as. Tell us about those early days and how, how that all came about, where you trained, and because you, know, you were involved in a couple of very interesting things <laughs> happening there in Sydney back in the 70s and 80s. Yeah, I mean, dance for me at Newcastle was going to, I think it was called Bus Stop Discotheque on Saturday night and make sure you didn't get your head beaten in. They actually liked not only the social side of it, of uh, meeting, in my case, the opposite sex, but um, but also I actually liked the act of dancing. It of, but it, it was, in Newcastle in those days, not really a widely accepted practice. Like I said, sport, uh, football, we used to play Australian rules. I was actually not very good, but a high board diver. So that was the closest I got to dance in that form, and then dance and music was there, was social. So I didn't um, actually encounter dance at all in my life until I actually went to university in Sydney, and one of my early girlfriends uh, was a part-time dancer. I mean, it was, she was studying together, but she actually introduced me to this thing called modern dance that I'd never heard of. I knew roughly what ballet was and never had any real interest to be involved in that. But uh, with Elizabeth was, um, at that time, had studied dance as a school subject at Fort Street 
girls' high school in Sydney in those days uh, with quite a wonderful character called Coralie Hinckley. And she used to work for a lady called Margaret Barr uh, or performed Margaret Barr, which is a kind of part of Australian death history, on Saturdays. You know, like, so we used to go along and then do classes. And then she dragged, dragged me. Now, I went with curiosity to see a performance, I think it was at the Teachers' Federation House in Sussex Street in Sydney, which has long disappeared, I think, and said, let's have a look at this performance. And I didn't know what was going on. I didn't understand, and I was very, thought it very strange. But at the time, I was, I was doing an academic program at university, but trying to be a painter. So I thought I could be a painter, I was interested, but sort of autodidactic kind of painter. Went down and saw this staging and had lots of questions about why everybody was making so much noise on stage and didn't seem to be what dance had to do and what was actually happening here. There was no kind of clear narrative thread. So that was the beginning. But in actual fact, I went back to visual arts and studying and decided, you know, that was something my girlfriend did. And only later when we went to Europe together and she introduced to me to a guy called Kei Tai Chan, who's kind of uh, an important figure in the sort of the second half of the 20th century in Sydney in contemporary dance and modern dance, um, who was performing at a place called Over Theatre. And I said, yeah, how are you? That's fine. And uh, a year later, after doing what Australians do, travelling home, it took me about 14 months to get overland back to Oz. I decided by that time I needed to do something physical. And I did yoga once a week. And uh, I'd the relationship with Liz had sort of finished, but I found that Kei Tai Chan was teaching at Stanley Palmer's Cultural Palace in Sydney. It was on the corner of Stanley and Palmer Street, and it was a, a desanctified, uh, beautiful sandstone building. I'm sure it's still there. And it was a culture centre in the red light area of Darlinghurst. Um, so I taught ceramics there as part of the culture centre, but also went Tuesdays and Thursdays to beginners dance class. I never studied dance in that form. I was actually within four weeks of doing those classes. I was on stage up a ladder waving my hands around in a light because there was such a shortage of men in that business in alternative fringe dance in Sydney in those days. This is like late 70s. And then, of course, Europe in 81, right? Germany's always had quite a number of big names as far as uh, contemporary dance goes. Pina Bausch, we have to think about, and, of course, Forsyth and various other people in that respect, probably already working well and truly in the 80s. And you yourself then worked in Bochum and Bremen, right, mm -hmm. with uh, Reinhild Hoffmann, right? That's right, yeah. How did that come about? Well, a little bit the same uh, also through a, uh, another girlfriend of mine, actually. I have a lot to thank the girls for. The only thing I sort of really knew about Germany before I left Oz, well, after working for three years in underground experimental theatre after sort of university, was the Bauhaus, uh, Oskar Schlemmer, but more from the point of view of fine arts perspective. We actually went to London with one extra, organised that in a completely mad um, um, foray, taking 14 to 15 people to London without a theatre, without costumes, and just turning up and saying, can we perform here? Which was sort of just basically happened because Kate had a very thin connection to one of the people there that was involved in the dance scene. And we did get a, a season at The Place, which is quite an established theatre in London, so it was totally lucky, but we managed to do a two season, double season there. And then the company in Kate went back, but I decided that it was such a, a low-budget activity being a contemporary dancer that I couldn't afford to go back to Australia and get back to Europe. And I wanted to keep travelling, I wanted to do that. And I also thought uh, whether I could exist outside this company called One Extra Dance. It was a very sort of company of very idiosyncratic individuals and practices, but I was wondering whether I could do this thing called dance with other people. 
And so I decided to stay and the company went back and I had a session freelancing in London for a while and then I was uh, for six months a seahorse and a pirate with the dance and education company in Ipswich. And at that time, uh, Chrissy Parrott, who's quite an established Western Australian choreographer, uh, said to me, she was, she'd been over in Europe, and I should go over and check it out. You know, that was basically. And I'd heard of the name Pina Bausch, mm. but I didn't really know very much about it. And I certainly didn't know the name Reinhold Hoffman. But on my Christmas break, I hitchhiked over to Wuppertal and turned up in Wuppertal and said, can I audition? When I think about it now, what I know about now, uh, um, it was pretty amazing what happened. I got to stay for a week, and I sort of, in the evenings after Wuppertal auditions, I sort of had one-to-one rehearsals with Pina that she couldn't really decide, and so sort of didn't say no, but couldn't say yes. And I'd, before that, because I thought that was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen on stage and the logical extension of what I'd been doing in Sydney with Keitai, but I had been in Bremen beforehand uh, and met Reinhild and found out about the whole kind of, well, it began to find out, not find out, the whole tradition of German modern dance that goes back to Kurt Jors, Rudolf uh, von Laban, and started to begin, to, that was my first uh, entry into that. Pina couldn't decide, so I had a, um, a contract, Reinhold offered me a contract, with the promise that I would sort of work on my classical ballet technique, which was at that time very, very modest. Well, well that was going to be my question. I mean, you, you land in Germany, and suddenly you're dancing for one of the most famous choreographers auditioning for two of them and you land with one and actually what sort of technique what sort of ballet technique did you actually have I mean from what I can understand you haven't had any lessons at all well no that's not true because uh, it was a condition of the Australia Council for one extra after about 18 months that we uh, do ballet classes so they wouldn't fund us anymore so <laughs> I um <laughs> So I ended up being along with four or five of my colleagues um, and um, very atypical looking at Valerie Tweedy's Academy of Australian Ballet in central, the back of Central, uh, surrounded by people half my size dressed in pink. And we were, I had bells and bangles and beards and very, very long hair in those days. And most of us did that. It was, it was a very strange mixture of uh, meeting of the ballet world with this sort of strange, freaky, experimental dance people from one extra. The connection was, and I'm very grateful at that time, to two, two people um, that worked with us. One was Valerie Tweedy, who, who in her ballet world looked like a very sort of, uh, severe ballet kind of figure, but was actually uh, also someone who'd been over here, worked with Ballet Rooster Monte Carlo, who had been actually a um, kindred spirit in terms of no, not seeing the world as all in pink, but just to survive in Sydney in those days, that was the bread ticket. And her pal Peggy Watson, I'm not sure if either of them in my life, uh, but Peggy um, was also a very kind of stoic Scottish Someone that also went to see Grotowski performances, people from the ballet world that had a, a, a different connection to the performance world. And they had a soft spot for us and they took us in. So I actually did ballet classes, but this is going to be ironical for you because these ballet classes were, along with the Aboriginal Island Dance Company, which was then forming under a woman called Carol Johnson. So in Sydney, I can remember this, the St James Hall in the mornings working with the, with the, with the Aboriginal Island dancers, um, doing Graham to Martha Graham classes twice a week and ballet classes twice a week. So that's, I, I kind of begin to know what a sensorium is. If I, I don't know if you know what that is. It's a dance belt. It's a very strange pair of underwear, that, underpants you have to wear when you're a ballet dancer. 
and start to point my legs in that kind of way and start to think about what tondus are. So I'd, I'd actually got to London with an, a year and a half of that stuff behind me and the rest was a bit of bullshit, really, <laughs> bluffing. Uh, I mean, indeed, in counting someone like um, Pina Bausch at that stage of her career, she was a pretty serious woman, a remarkable artist, rather renowned for her exactness in many ways and, and really also choosing unusual sorts of dances and things. I think that's why she sort of actually even considered <laughs> talking to me because I said I'd sent a letter and uh, I don't think that was true either but I turned up and I was totally naive and then she's got some of the best dancers in the world around at the time. No, I think it was because of that part of the work maybe that interested her. I'm a bit of a character uh, kind of uh, person on stage, less of a technician and I think that maybe she gave me the benefit of it out there. And but I went through some very very exhausting hours with her doing Sacre de Printemps, from oh. which is a very demanding piece of dancing. Mm. And then she even sort of saying to me, "Why am I dancing like a rock? And why am I so stiff?" And at the time I was going, "Well, look, I'm doing the best I can." But when I think about it now, that she even gave me the time of day, uh, even after one day, I was very grateful this experience. <laughs> So I didn't get the job, but I did certainly have this very f fantastic experience with the kind of very laconic Peter Bausch, a sort of mm -hmm. uh, a, a personality, well, not very transparent personality, but someone who was very had a great aura and presence. And certainly at the time when I saw the work, because uh, while I was there, I saw this work, and I was completely knocked out about what dance could be, mm -hmm. as opposed to what I did uh, come it's to a expect. Very, very, very famous choreography of hers as well, isn't it? Well, Sacra is the kind of, it's the choreography that, that for some people legitimized um, the whole dance entry into what has become a transdisciplinary kind of performance, multi-gesamtkunstwerke. With Sacra, it was always possible to demonstrate that the people who were dancing for Pina and Pina's work was highly skilled, technical, physical work. Because especially in the 80s, I mean, later she came back to um, dance or um, movement and music. But in the 80s, especially, the whole question of what do I do on stage as a dancer was uh, completely in the, in the front of everybody's attention. And Pina's and her company were quite um, sort of um, seriously questioning the kind of received notion of what a dancer should be do uh, what, as, as, as an object of desire and of a performance desire and uh, as you probably know made the big break um, for theatre that uh, the experience became the experience of the performer became the subject of the performance. to talking to Barry Kosky, one of the things that he says that we Australians seem to be able to export a lot of are dancers. Do you think that the dancers that come out of Australia these days um, getting the sort of background and the preparation that they need for careers elsewhere? Well, what I've heard, I mean, just if we go back to just Pina, I mean, Pina always had Australian dancers in the company Indeed. and uh, um, Meryl Tankar, Joanne Endicott, and yet now Julie. I think partly because Australian dancers in some ways are not as restricted about what they're prepared to do and what they're prepared to try, even if uh, they come they, and often like 
Joanne, who has, or Meryl, a very strong ballet background, still were completely open to um, exploring what that training in their body could do in other ways in the theatrical context. And I think at the time, coming out of the 70s, well, there are lots of different uh, things happening in Australia in the 70s. I mean, the Australian ballet is kind of um, not that old by that stage. As I think it's, if I've got my history right, it's 20 years since Borovansky started the Australian ballet in the 50s. So I, the kind of identity for Australian dancers to be in the, the ballet world, but there was not so much happening in the in a professional context in the non-ballet world. But then the arrival of Jonathan Taylor in Adelaide in Australian Dance Theatre started to open up the idea of contemporary, or not, let's be careful about this term, contemporary is, mm. uh, <laughs> is terms, all right, let's modern, a modern dance or contemporary modern dance, there's, it's a bit of a, a minefield, this terminology, but came to Australia and the Australian Dance Theatre also started to open up to contemporary choreographers at the time who were working outside of ballet aesthetic but still using the technique. So there's people like Glenn Tetley and Christopher Bruce from London who are moving away from the, the, the traditional ballet aesthetic of, of uh, celebrating the body in a very strict canon of, of steps and, and, and music. Having said that, of course, there are always exceptions and uh, Australian ballet also perform works by neoclassical choreographers. Mm. But on the other hand, the people that were challenging uh, the whole notion of what dance could be in, other than ballet were also often in the wings at that time in the 70s. Uh, I think that's changed quite a bit. But uh, one extra was emerging in that, but there were also a, a bunch of people called the Dance Exchanges, Russell Dumas, who's still, I think, in Sydney, but Eva Karsak, who teaches now to this day here in Europe, who were then opening up to a completely different world, and that's the Judson church American modern dance decided to challenge even the uh, the modern Corophian or the more the established modern heroes of Martha Graham and uh, and Doris Humphrey and um, paradigm change that happened in dance in the mid especially in America in the middle of the 20th century is to move from representation to presence so uh, John Cage Cunningham uh, not so much what the body was standing for, representing, but what the body could do and finding out and exploring and leaving things open to chance. So that that was quite, and still is, a big difference to what was happening here in Germany in, in that context or in relationship to Pina Bausch. There was, of course, a lot of people here interested in bringing that American tradition also to the continent, but there was a very strong tradition in Essen, in Wuppertal, of German expressionist modern that had kind of been truncated in the 30s in the Second World War, but it had been, along with America, one of the centres of innovation and experiment in dance, in international dance. Got put to sleep through the National Socialists and then was revived when uh, Court Hughes, who'd been given a home in Darting College in England, came back and uh, to Dart to Essen. And, uh, and Pina Bausch was one of his... Uh, most important students at that time. Right. So that's where the, the, the kind of threads kind of connect. And there are connections, of course, always have been connections, transatlantic connections, because these things are never black and white. But mm. uh, uh, let's say moving from the kind of interest in the body as an art object in America that's becoming an art object and what can it do to an object of social and psychological inquiry. Mm. Pina always said she's not interested so much in the movement of the body as what moves the mm. people 
that are moving. So what's the, what, how are they motivated? What's, what's driving those kind of movements? Yeah. Very famous quote, of course, and that's a very interesting aspect. Of course, from the beginning with you, though, it's, it's been choreography and dance and in directing as well. You know, you haven't really just stayed in one particular area. This already says to me that perhaps you think even the description of dance doesn't sufficiently cover what a performer should be doing, that it's somehow much bigger than that, because you've been involved in the whole process right from the beginning, right? Yeah, well, I mean, when I entered into it, I didn't know very much at all. And like I say, coming from a visual arts, uh, mm. academic visual arts background, had that more of that kind of tradition behind me, or tradition, or that kind of cultural tradition, European, Western art, and the movement into the modern. Um, but I was very impressed uh, by two people in Australia at that time, if I can just go back to that, to say, one was a guy called Donald Brook, who was lecturing in modern art at Sydney University. As a beginning student, I was totally thrown into panic because I didn't understand one of the lectures, the first four lectures uh, that he gave. It was about aesthetics and the flight from the object, and uh, I had absolutely no idea what that had to do with the kind of historical approach that I'd done in a couple of years of school, visual arts, art history, but began to actually open me up to a whole uh, understanding of the function of art and art practice in relationship to social and political movements and uh, as, an, uh, as an aesthetic or a philosophical concept in itself. The other one was a guy called Ken Unsworth, who was my sculpture teacher at the Sydney Teacher College, <laughs> who refused to teach any technique, but said, if you've got any questions, uh, come and see me and we can talk about it. So the epistemological idea of finding out what you are interested in always has interested me as an artistic practice. So never to, to want to repeat a kind of cultural accepted skill. I've done that. I had a lot of fun doing that. I've sort of learned to do the best of my ability, which is not particularly great, but let's say to take on board te techniques like Graham technique, ballet, uh, right down to these days, hip hop and, and street dancing, but never um, was so much interested in the perfection of those techniques on their own terms, but what they could bring me in terms of opening up areas of, of uh, inquiry about ways to ask the world why the world is like it is and how it can be. So if that's not too opaque, as I would say, <laughs> that when I got into dance, that was the, suddenly I sort of combined this need to um, to enjoy the physical challenge of encountering the world as a as a body, along with the cognitive challenges of trying to say what what can I do with this body that I think is interesting or challenging, and I suppose that's what I'm doing here now institutionally uh, with my students. So it's a long curve, mm. but um, like 35 years ago, I started as a performer and a maker, and uh, using uh, asking myself what this this live presence, this physicality, um, as opposed to textual theatre or text-based theatre, which I was um, at the time not very convinced by that as a, an interesting medium for these kind of artistic questions. Uh, with all due respect to the colleagues in repertory theatres. So I think I was, in that sense, never never satisfied just to go one way uh, with one discipline, and that's a positive thing, but it's also a restriction because you're sort of you're a jack of all trades and master of none. How easy was it for you establishing yourself as an Australian artist here in Germany in the way that you did back in the 80s? That whatever that is, Australian quality. I suppose the Australian quality was the openness and then the, the the curiosity and 
the lack of a kind of lobby mentality about promoting one or the other kind of performance. So mm. I think Australians are very happy to move, and it's an Anglo-Saxon thing, but it's particularly Australian quality perhaps, to be able to say, okay, I can try this and I can try that, and whatever works, to be open to the new, to being persuaded um, that there are other things, and not to go down those lines of serious or so-called entertainment theatre or performance or painting for there. Uh, but simply to see what's the task at hand and to get pleasure and satisfaction from applying oneself to that situation without feeling that one's betraying a tradition of 500 years of, you know, sort mm. of like music history or European history or whatever. As you know, that's a debate that's been going on in Australia since actually the Australian Impressionists and the Angry Penguins were writing and de- trying to decide what is there an Australian art form or not Australian art form with Norman Lindsay, I think it was, in, back in those days, 150 yeah. years ago. But now that's still in the spirit. So for me, too, I say at that point, even though it may not sound like anymore, I came here with an Australian accent. And I had that kind of cheek or openness uh, to turn up in Vaupertuis and say, <laughs> give me a go, you know, uh, without having to bring out my qualifications or whichever, you know. And I think that surprises people here. And the, the German is quite, uh, what's the English word for entwaffnet? So they're, they're disarmed a little bit by the fact that anybody could even pretend or claim to want to do this and uh, because for them uh, you know you have to be able to say I've been studying for 12 years in this academy that academy and I think Australians we have and I'm not saying all Australians like this not at all Australians have highly qualified skilled people but there is the chance to come in from the side just because we think we can you know (laughs) Uh, just because (laughs) if you have a go you have a go and if you don't it sort of doesn't work but you don't have to feel like uh, that your whole um, cultural Eurocentric kind of approach to life will then dismiss you from ever doing anything again. Indeed and of course it is now Professor Rhys Martin. You are actually now an educator and in in a very interesting and very unique institution here in Berlin. Berlin's been your home for a long time. I was able to witness today, when I come to a dance academy, I thought I was going to be witnessing dance classes, but it was something actually quite different. And it was a group of young students who were discussing their final assessment program, what they're actually doing. For me, you seem to have been able to to move all of these ideas of yours over to the point of actually uh, presenting a platform here for these young artists. Now, even the title of the course that you're teaching here, Solo Dance and Authorship, is actually quite unique in many ways. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, it's, I think it's the only one, because I've been fighting for that title for about 12 or 13 years, ever since I started doing this. In the beginning, I was a little bit naive. I didn't really realise what kind of trouble I was getting into by calling the course this. It was, for me, combining a bunch of interests. Like you just said, I mean, I also... As far as possible, I've been lucky enough to be able to be involved in lots of kinds of uh, levels of theatre, so directing mainstream theatre, I've been involved in film, musicals, directing plays, etc. And you've, of course, worked with major uh, German ensembles, like the Berlin Philharmonic is one, and, of course, uh, Ensemble Modern. Yeah, yeah. so that's been very lucky. And uh, to be able to sort of challenge the fine platforms that are also, I think, each time are looking for other ways of doing something. So that's if I say that's what I'm basically interested in, other ways, at the same time celebrating what has been done before. It's not that I have sort of completely tabula rasa and that's all rubbish that's happened before because I also, as you probably know, I also teach in musical theatre, which is kind of traditionally the arch enemy of what I'm doing here, <laughs> uh, conceptual experimental performance. But I've uh, just this very wide interest in embracing all 
possible platforms that may are involved in asking us in different ways about what life can, how we can see life. And it's, it's kind of philosophical practice, if, if you like, through practice, through movement, through movement and thinking. So what happened about 12 years ago, there was, uh, or 13 years ago now, because we're celebrating, there was the federal government announced, uh, suddenly released a lot of funds to improve the position of dance in Germany as being perceived the poorest relative in the arts. And this is true. Dancers are, even in state theatres, much better off than the rest of the world where they don't earn very much money at all. They have 13-month contracts here, but they're the, pretty much the lowest paid in the hierarchy of theatre. And to improve the lobby of those dancers to be able to become articulate about what it is they're actually doing, when in actual fact so many of them just very, very occupied because it's a very, very demanding job to do how to get their bodies to do what they want them to do. So then to be able to get in to um, have the distance and the age to be able to sort of uh, conceptualise and formulate their ideas has never been a priority in conserv conservatory uh, education. So one of the things here I thought we needed and the solo thing is I thought the lowest common denominator that could be financed and this kind of performance interrogation was to ask people to think about what it is they do themselves on stage, what they're responsible for, how did they get to where they're going, what are they thinking, and how can they communicate those thoughts through what they do on stage or in installations or in the gallery, but also in other forms. So that, that, that it's not just that's my work and you know take it or leave it, but to be able to think about this as a, as a practice of social sharing information outside the mercantile, outside the applied, not not really knowing what it's good for, but simply believing in that it is actually has value in itself. The, f the fact that we can just look and ask ourselves how else and what else can be done. Very very interesting, of course. How much of this has to do with the fact that you come from Australia? And this Australian background of yours and all of those qualities and characteristics that you were talking about before. In other words, you're presenting something here in Germany. And I'm wondering, would this be possible in any other country? Perhaps it's possible. What's certainly possible here is that we can get institutional support for this, you know, uh, whether that's possible in other countries. It may be. It depends on what kind of argument you can present. And let's be clear about this. The current sort of attitude in German cultural politics makes it possible to set up courses that, as in direct correspondence or uh, comparison to British academia at the moment, that doesn't have a price tag on it. So the German education system is incredibly generous in welcoming other people from other cultures and countries, as long as along with its own. And I must say, uh, uh, we have more international students than German students, but I've never had a problem from politicians or government that that is in any way a problem and I can imagine that would be a problem in many other countries where what about our students but also to give them to be able to, to resource a course that would cost actually if you were buying it like in, in, in Britain well my daughter is now doing a MA in Britain in the National Film Television School and it's costing her 23,000 euros just for the fees Arguably, she's going into a business where she can earn that money back. In contemporary dance, there is no chance. <laughs> or let's say that won't be that nihilistic, but there's very little chance that you will be able to um, finance a lifestyle with this kind of very, very edgy, experimental, uh, very difficult to put a sort of value on it, a product value, what it's good for. It's not entertainment. Uh, it is an academic research through the body. And of itself, I think, and I've defended this many times, valuable, 
not just to the people who are doing it, but to the community that allows that kind of thinking to go on. But in other countries, to get resources to do that, with people asking you, yes, but what what, what do they earn and what are their jobs do they do and how will they earn? Uh, I think this one of the great advantages of the cultural landscape in Germany is that that is not immediately the question. It's not not a question, but uh, the very fact that we're, we can resource these kind of programs uh, speaks for a, a still a very liberal, open uh, minded political society that are, that sees value in cultural practice. Let's look at the international aspect a little bit because that class that I visited this afternoon, we had somebody from Bolivia, we had somebody from Poland, we had somebody from Ghana, we had somebody from Argentina. These were all students in your class. This remarkable sort of melting pot of people with such diverse cultural backgrounds coming together. Contemporary dance is pretty nomadic international world. It's not a wealthy world, but it's a highly mobile world. There are lots of residencies, there's lots of solidarity, there's a kind of a feeling because it's also very youthful because the body is still a big part of this practice. So uh, having a body that works and does things generally means that a lot of younger people, from my perspective, younger people, are busy with this art form uh, and not so many older people. They have a highly a, a great resilience to be able to not demand uh, all the material comforts that maybe. Other artists who are in more mature years, uh, there's a kind of buzz in being a, a nomad prepared to sleep here and there and travel at short term, and uh, it's it's part of the artistic identity. So having said that, here at the HZT, HZT, the International University for Dance, all the programs have got a high international component. Perhaps what with Soto or Solo Dance Authorship is that because of this, the name that I sort of um, spent a lot of time um, dealing with was to how can I offer both a practice that can be done cheaply or sort of feasibly. You don't need a company of dancers every time you do a work. Let's say it's cited in the actual, the performer is the author, is the maker. And I've done this kind of work myself, so I know how difficult it is to be that inside and outside person that to do it and still call it dance without moving into performance because performance is a big term now in visual and, and the theatre arts, but mm. it would be a shame to lose the kind of cognitive and theoretical side of that performance and just say the dancers are the ones that move to music. As a, uh, it's just not true. And then the authorship is the whole question of who does this stuff belong to, where is it, taps into a whole kind of not only local but uh, international research agenda, post-colonialism, uh, appropriation, queer theory. So what was essentially an attempt at the beginning just to look at the difficulty of what it is to make performance by yourself. We've emerged into this whole discursive arena which covers philosophy, sociology, media theory and an absolutely exploding uh, area of inquiry that's now in the arts on a one-to-one -one basis in not just talking about the arts but actually performing within the arts these ideas how are they how they can be how can they be used so we're here busy with names from philosophy Foucault literary theatre psychoanalysis Lacan these are really strong influences in the making of dance and the fact that we can offer this in English means it makes it incredibly accessible to an international type of performer that is busy with this kind of ideas and would and is looking for firstly company because Doing it by themselves is a very lonely business and these are individuals that are isolated in some ways in their own kind of communities. To be able to come here and at the same time not encounter that everybody's doing the same stuff, but 
in actual fact, we look to try and find people who are different to each other, uh, but still have the claim that they have to be able to work together and to find levels of communication. So what you saw today was an attempt for people who would normally not talk to people who have those kind of ideas outside themselves, attempting to share the, the difficulty, the common difficulty of saying, what can I say about my work? And to be able to be not defensive about that, to offer it to a community who have a similar interest in also being in a sympathetic and protective environment, being able to find out and navigate what it is that can be said about uh, they do in order to better understand what they do themselves, but also to educate their audiences and to be able to not say, well, I, you know, you don't understand me or you understand me, but to be able to articulate not only in the work, but in, in how they talk about the work. And this is a big shift in arts practice anyway, especially in the dance, contemporary dance world, to move from the object of observation, of representation, into an active interaction with the audience in a dialogue about what it is art is and what can do and what can the body do and what can the performance do and what is choreography and what is dance. We don't offer a prescriptive idea of what dance is, not that there's any problem with that, but we actually ask people to come from lots of different environments, cultural, economic, social, aesthetic, and tell us or tell the community through us what they think dance is. And I think that's much more interesting. That, I mean, that's basically what I've been interested in since Stanley Palmer's Cultural Palace uh, <laughs> back there in Sydney in the late 70s. Yeah. This work that you're doing and also seeing what's happening in Australia, do you sometimes think that perhaps something like what you're doing here might help with a certain number of problems that Australia faces in that way? Oh, wow. That's interesting. I haven't really thought. My connection with Oz is it's an interesting one because I've done a few works there. In fact, three or four years ago, I just did a work with a bunch of young people in Sydney. We showed it at the Sydney Art Gallery. But I'm actually out of the loop in the artistic world there. I have been actually for 30 years, I suppose. I did a, a piece called Dinosaur in Sydney exactly 32 years ago. This is the age of my oldest daughter, so I, I can remember that one. But since then, I ha I've done not a few projects, but I've never been part of the continuous situation. The cards haven't gone that way where I've been managed to maintain an ongoing artistic relationship. So, But what I do is, because uh, I have uh, at least four siblings that are still there, my mother, almost 90, is uh, also in Australia. And so going back there and walking around the back suburbs of Australia, of Adelaide, a very sort of strange experience in some ways with the galas and the cockatoos and everybody's spring gardens looking wonderful. And when you meet someone in the street, they say, oh, it's a bit hot today, isn't it? You know, and after being in Europe where people look away or have sort of, you know, uh, and I've got used to that too, of being the, the whole notion of private space, an entirely different one. That was interesting because that was a totally non-professional visit. I did actually go to, um, but through private family, I went to a performance of students in the, uh, the Adelaide Arts Academy or a, a bunch of movement students. And I thought they were, they were great. I had a very sort of sense of contemporary uh, issues about their political demands. They're still making pieces in some cases about the boys at the Barbie, you know, that kind of Australian cultural critical stuff that's been going on for about 40, 50 years, I thought that subject matter was perhaps uh, a little stale um, and I was wondering what are the issues, what are political issues about immigration, though that was, I have to say, that was also a very strong element of these young people's. It was a presentation of a class, it wasn't a, a show in a sense. So your question about how that 
how this kind of practice that I do here could influence there. I, I tried to keep a con abreast of what's actually happening, but I noticed that I, I haven't voted for many years because I wouldn't uh, presume to do that. No, because I, it's, I'm here. I know a lot more about German politics, even though I don't, can't vote here, mm -hmm. uh, and British politics than I do about Australian politics. But I'm aware of Manus Island and the things that are happening there. I'm aware of the, uh, the Barrier Reef and of the plans there for coal exploitation. It's very frustrating and occasionally I send um, moralistic letters to my Facebook account there. Why aren't we doing anything about this? <laughs> What's going on? But in actual fact, I don't feel like I'm in a position from here to be able to um, in any way make recommendations for something that I'm no longer really uh, informed of all the facts. But I do try and keep up. Whether what we're doing here can do with that, well, yeah, sure. I keep on saying that what we are doing here is not just an aesthetic practice, it's a social practice. And I think what the class is trying to do with its internationalism is to be able to, to recognize the value of other cultures and other, uh, other ways of seeing it the world and actually put people together to actually find ways of how to agree, how to work together, how to live together and how to take responsibility for one's own sense of identity without losing that at the same time to be able to embrace alterity or difference. So I think artistic practice in any way, a lot of it does that, but I would say that in, in this case, and my experience in the last 10 years has been that I think that it's valuable. Maybe it's a pretty high-end ivory tower version of it, but it's not without ripples. We all produce ripples, so the kind of behavior that we practice here amongst ourselves, I would maintain ripples out to our other uh, relationships with other people and other contexts and without being deliberately, you know, don't make a deliberate attempt to put three Syrians in the class because that's what's happening at the moment. We have a lot of applications from people from those kind of places, Iran. I get a lot of applications from Iran and try not to be swayed by the fact of we have to give these people a kind of political mm -hmm. asylum. We only take them if we think the artistic practice is going to be helpful for everybody involved and not because they're in a socially difficult position or a politically difficult position. So yes, I think it can be valuable, but I wouldn't presume to say that, uh, that uh, this is in any way kind of what Australia needs. You know? <laughs> Rhys Martin, when do you feel Australian the most? I know I'm an Australian when I mumble, when I people always tell me, what, uh, or I know Australians... No, I'm an Australian when occasionally my vowels bend, maybe after a glass or two of wine, and realise, oh, I do have an accent of my own, even though everybody tells me now that I have a German accent when I go back to, to Oz sometimes. And I, when I'm Australian, when I have a fairly healthy disrespect for anything authoritarian or any rules <laughs> and regulations. And uh, I know I'm Australian when I get home at night and open the fridge and need a beer. <laughs> Dancer and choreographer Rhys Martin there. Don't forget, if you'd like to find out more about the Tall Poppy series, then do drop by our website. You'll find it at tall-poppies.com. You can also drop us an email to the address info at tall-poppies.com. That's info at tall-poppies.com. 
Sound engineer Thanos Karakantas helped put together this episode, which was produced in Berlin and made possible through the support of the Australian Embassy in Berlin. I'm Brendan O'Shea. It was nice to have you with us today, and I'll look forward to welcoming you again very soon.